0: I don't know. I'm really not involved with the Justice Department. I'd like to let it run itself. But honestly, they should be looking at the Democrats. They should be looking at Podesta and all of that dishonesty. They should be looking at a lot of things. And a lot of people are disappointed in the Justice Department, including me. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Every single person around this administration, when asked a direct question about contacts with Russians on this issue, has lied about it. I, I don't remember much about that meeting. It was a very unimportant meeting. Have we ever seen anything like yes. this? Yes, I haven't. Yes, we have. Was, it's was called Watergate back in 1972 right. yeah, and 73. Yeah, yeah. Hello, and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the man who calls the American criminal justice system a laughingstock and a joke. Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. And you can see why Trump, as a potential target of Special Prosecutor Robert Mueller, might be saying that. With the president's former campaign manager, Paul Manafort, out on bail and confined to his home pending trial, we're now moving into uncharted territory with the Trump-Russia scandal. Or perhaps it's not so uncharted after all. I recently reread All the President's Men, Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein's story of reporting the Watergate scandal. I also rewatched the movie, which is pretty damn good. The basic scenario of White House scandal from 45 years ago felt pretty familiar. You start with a crime. In 1972, it was a break-in to the Democratic National Committee. In 2016, it was a cyber break-in to the Democratic National Committee. The president and his aides pass their efforts to undermine democracy office, some kind of rogue operation having nothing to do with them. Meanwhile, their effort to obstruct justice is underway, paying off people who could testify against top officials, promising pardons, and in both cases, firing prosecutors to try to end the investigation. Week by week, day by day, the leaks continue as the scandal moves closer to the Oval Office. Congressional investigations operate in parallel with a special prosecutor developing criminal charges. The momentum builds until, finally, impeachment. But how much is Watergate really a guide to Russiagate? I'll be back to ask the historian and Nixonographer, David Greenberg. But first, Sarah Huckabee Sanders did an excellent job minimizing the campaign role of George Papadopoulos at a press conference on Monday. It's almost like she was practicing. Trumpcast has gained access to the private recordings of White House lawyers working with Sanders to craft their response in case any other Trump associates find
1: themselves in Mueller's crosshairs. Take a listen. OK, Sarah, this is just a practice session for how to linguistically distance the president from anyone who agrees to testify against him. We want to minimize that person as much as possible. Like you did with Papadopoulos at the press conference, saying this individual was the member of a volunteer council that met one time over the course of a year. He was not paid by the campaign. That was great. Let's practice minimizing some bigger fish in case they flip against the president. Uh, What what if you're asked about Jeff Sessions? Right, right. Um, Okay. Um, Okay. Okay. This individual, as we all know, had a small role in the campaign because he is, in fact, very small. Uh, When you're in a room with him, he is often hard to see and difficult to hear. It is well known that the president hates this individual, has always hated him, and never listens to him. Excellent. Uh, What about someone closer to the president, like uh, Eric Trump? Okay. Uh Right. Eric Trump. Okay. This individual has been described by the press as the president's son. When this news broke, we asked the president, he said, Eric, who? We showed him multiple pictures and he furrowed his brow in vague recognition. Look, campaigns have many sons. It is virtually impossible to keep track of all your sons on a campaign. The president barely knows this individual and would describe him as much more of a nephew than a son. Okay, that's very good. Now, I, I hate to do this last one, but how would you distance yourself if you were compelled to testify against the president? Okay, right. <clears throat> me. Okay. Um, this individual is me. Uh, my relationship with the president has been much shorter than most other people in his administration. And because I have never, ever actually answered a single question about the president, no direct tie can be made at this time. Wonderful. That, that's really good. We'll keep coming back and doing these. Okay. But you think I always should wear it like a fuchsia dress when I make these statements? I think that's great. With like a real distracting sleeve. That was
0: Let's Minimize Witnesses, written and performed by Steve Waltine and Kate James. Joining me today is David Greenberg. He's a professor of American history at Rutgers University, and he's the author of books including The Republic of Spin and Nixon's Shadow. David, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you, Jacob.
0: So it's the Nixon's Shadow stuff I wanted to talk to you about today, basically you're the person I know who knows just about the most about Watergate, and these comparisons of the Trump Russia scandal to the Watergate are inevitable. I mean, we call it—most people call it RussiaGate—because we call all political scandals whatever Gate on the Watergate template.
2: And you yeah, know, although I've I've come to prefer as a throwback to the twenties. Onion Dome, but that hasn't caught on. (laughs) It's clever. It's clever. I'm not sure. I'm not sure
0: people are going to use it. But the thing I've been thinking about is how much is this parallel to Watergate? How much does Watergate tell us? And, you know, does it, does it, is it distorting lens as well? Do you think, to ask the big question, that it's useful to think about what's going on right now in terms of Watergate?
2: Yeah, I, I tend to not like analogies for that reason, that they sort of lure us into seeing the parallels and neglecting the differences, right? I mean, I think that's sort of the danger. What's interesting is there are some very real parallels this time. But so we should, I think we should talk about both. I mean, for me, the parallel is that in both cases, you have a campaign season break-in. One was physical and one was virtual.
0: To the same damn Uh, place, to the Democratic National Committee.
2: Right. So at both times, it's opposition research, you know, gone wild, gone illegal, gone rogue, although that implies the candidate didn't know, which, which we haven't established. In both cases, it was actually vented quite a bit during the fall campaign and the alarm was sounded, but there was no smoking gun, there was no tying it to Nixon or to Trump. And then in both cases, too, sort of as soon as the new uh, Congress convened, there was already warning signs and uh, Senate investigation and so on. Yes. And and you
0: immediately start with this break in. And the question is, how far does it go towards the candidate or the president. And in right. the case of Watergate, I was looking back at some of this history recently. I mean, it's striking the way in which senior officials at the White House immediately said, oh, this has nothing to do with us. We don't know who these people are. Oh, it turns out we do know who they are, but it was, this, was a, this was a rogue operation, as you say. And week by week, it gets closer and closer to the Oval Office as these links are established. It seems we're embarked on a very similar kind of process here where this crime, you can call it a crime, was committed of this break-in. And the initial response from Trump campaign people is, it's got nothing to do with us, no connection to us. They did not even accept that Russians had anything to do with it. And week by week, we're getting more and more connections to that campaign.
2: Right. So, that is the real parallel. And, of course, we're still in the middle of it, maybe even in the early stages of it. So, we don't know where it ends up. We don't know, again, to use that Watergate term of smoking gun. I mean, that's a term that comes out of that period. You eventually had tapes. You eventually had audio recordings that showed the president knew very well about this, if not before it happened, then immediately after. Uh, and was involved in covering it up. And what we don't know is whether we'll get a smoking gun, whether we'll get proof tying this to Donald Trump. And it may be that there's enough layers of space between him and whoever was carrying this out that he escapes unscathed or at least unimpeached. Uh, Or it may be that like Watergate, we keep getting closer, but it's simply it 's simply too early to know i think but the other the other parallel that seems
0: so strong here is around the attempt to impede the investigation itself, the obstruction of justice, and Nixon fired Archibald Cox, the special prosecutor, Trump fired james comey, and it is in the air that he has talked about and considered the possibility of firing Robert Mueller, the, the special prosecutor, which again would be sort of a perfect parallel to Watergate, right?
2: Yeah. In fact, in the spring, we were already using the words Saturday Night Massacre at the time of the Comey firing. In fact, people even used it at the firing of Sally Yates, who, which was over the immigration order. <laughs> so in a way, the Nixonian analogy is in the air, it's something that we naturally reach for because I think to everybody there are evident similarities between the Trump style of of reckless, hardball politics and the Nixon style, the the lack of concern for law and so on is just is just so evident.
0: So l- let's talk about parallels with the role of the press and the role of Congress. If you look back at Watergate, one thing that I think is quite striking is that. Nixon, Nixon administration's attack on the press driving the investigation that is on the Washington Post in particular, but also on the New York Times, sounded surprisingly like Donald Trump's attack on the fake news. He didn't, Nixon didn't use that term, but it was the, the biased liberal press. They attacked these stories in ferocious terms day after day. Before you know, later in the investigation, ultimately
2: a- acknowledging that that almost everything reported was true. And what's interesting too is that there were a few moments, as always happens during Watergate, where reporters got things wrong, uh, where they went on the evening news with a story that turned out not to be quite right, where you know, major newspapers ran items that didn't stand up under scrutiny and that those were used by Nixon and his defenders to try to discredit the whole thing and to sort of cast aspersions on the press. And, you know, we've had some misfires here. There was the bit at CNN uh, that that led to some uh, reporters being let go. You know, Trump has just enough to point to on, on his side that his followers, his supporters can say he's right. But that's how reporting works. Reporting is always full of incomplete stories, partial errors that later have to get corrected. You know, as Woodward and Bernstein like to say, it's the best available version of the truth. It's, you know, today's story doesn't get you the full truth. You're you're on your way there. It's a cumulative process. But what looks really different to me, David, is the role of Congress.
0: In the Watergate era, Congress, both houses controlled by the opposition party, Democrats, took their constitutional role in the balance of powers quite seriously. And there were, of course, Republicans who were resistant to the investigation and who were reflexive defenders of Nixon. Over time, more and more of them came around to the seriousness of it. But Congress did its job in 1973 and 74. And when you compare that, that doesn't seem to hold up at all, does it?
2: No. I mean, and, you know, many people have noticed and have written, you know, books about the nature of Congress having changed so much more uniformity among the parties in terms of ideology, more of a sense of kind of lockstep following of the leader. So you didn't have the sort of range of different kinds of Republicans within the party. You know, you don't have that anymore. But in 73, 74, what was interesting with Nixon is there were Republicans who were you know, fairly liberal Republicans like Lowell Weicker of Connecticut, who were very aggressive in pursuing Watergate. But then there were also very conservative Republicans who, for various reasons, also had their suspicions about Nixon. They didn't think he was a true conservative, but more of an opportunist. So people like James Buckley, William F. Buckley's brother, uh, who was a senator from New York, was one of the first Republicans to come out for resignation or or impeachment. The other d- development that was
0: absolutely pivotal to Nixon's downfall was the revelation of the secret taping system in the White House and the tapes eventually, after a court decision, after a court ruling, being made public or, or being uh, introduced into evidence in the case. Without the tapes, would Nixon have been impeached? And do you, need, do you think you need an equivalent level of evidentiary proof
2: in this case? Right. So I would say there, there are two pieces that we don't have right now. One is the Watergate burglars were arrested, and they were put on trial. And one of them, James McCord, then writes a letter to the judge saying, we are being paid for our silence. So unless we arrest Guccifer or, you know, the person who did the hacking and get them to talk— we've lost an important piece of the puzzle, an important parallel. Again, not to say you can't assemble a case without that, but that was an important piece. And then to your question on the tapes, the tapes were clearly decisive in converting the last band of holdouts, especially once the Supreme Court forces Nixon to surrender the tapes to Congress and to the special prosecutor and it becomes clear what he's been hiding all along. That's really the death now. So, again, one can imagine the weight of public opinion, the cumulative suspicion, you know, mounting on Nixon. But at least in his own mind, it was knowing that this was on the tapes and knowing everybody was going to hear it on the tapes that persuaded him to resign.
0: So you made a joking reference to uh, Teapot Dome, but are there other scandals – Scandals other than Watergate that you think provide insight or relevant comparisons or just kind of help us get where this might be going?
2: Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, most of our big scandals until Watergate were like Teapot Dome, which listeners may not know the details of, but was basically old-time corruption. It was selling off, you know, Navy uh, oil yards for money and kickbacks. And, you know, changing money, changing hands, uh, that kind of thing. Watergate was different in that it was a scandal of the abuse of executive power. Because Watergate is about cheating in a presidential
0: election. Ironically, in Watergate, it was an election that Nixon was poised to win by a huge amount anyway. And he sacrificed the presidency in that sense gratuitously. But the larger scandal of Watergate was dirty tricks and the cheating and the financial corruption were so endemic to his political operation that the break-in was just the most egregious of many practices that were ongoing in the whole campaign.
2: Right, which is one reason I never like that old pundit chestnut that the cover-up is worse than the crime. I mean, certainly the Watergate cover-up did Nixon in because he was never directly pinned to the crime, but... We shouldn't for a moment think that the crime was itself simply a third-rate burglary as Ron Ziegler, the press secretary, tried to make people believe. I mean, having a burglary at the opposition party's headquarters in search of intelligence is a major crime and, and in and of itself, you know, impeachable. So, you know, that's something that gets thrown around a lot, but in this case, I think Uh, that underlying crime really shouldn't be ignored.
0: And that's not any different here, is it? I mean, it's the crime and the cover-up. I I think there is what what some Trump defenders would like you to believe is that you may have the uh, phenomenon of a cover-up without a crime, which always presents a dilemma in terms of prosecution. When someone commits crimes like lying to the FBI or lying under the oath to save themselves embarrassment, not to prevent detection from something that would itself be a criminal offense. But we're not there yet. There's every reason to think that we're dealing with crime and cover up here.
2: Right. I mean, we actually know a crime was committed or multiple crimes of of hacking and stealing property, electronic property. Um, The question is, do we know what the Trump campaign's role was in either – encouraging or authorizing those hacks beforehand or sort of actively collaborating with them in order to manipulate the election. So it's easy right now to defend Trump by saying, well, what they're getting Manafort on is unrelated to this. But if indeed the charges, the early charges on Manafort are leveraged to get more about his connections to the Russians and the hacking, then it starts to look very, very different
0: indeed. So we're dealing again with the question of what did he know and when did he know it. Where do you think it goes from here, David? Do you th- do you think the scenario that will play out is a, is a Watergate scenario or should we, we be watching for
2: something very different? To me, the question really will be what can they get from the hackers themselves? And there was a s- small story uh, over the summer. It didn't get a lot of traction that – they had one hacker or someone connected to the hackers under questioning. And if they are going to be able to pursue that line of question of getting the people who did the hacking, if they start finding out how the very plans were hatched in the first place, and then from the Russian side, what links were made to Trump, then I think the thing really could start to come together. On the other hand, I'm extremely... Um, I think it's extremely unlikely we're going to see impeachment. I think with given that we have a Republican House and that you would need I think 19 Republican senators to impeach or to remove Trump from office, you know, okay, Flake, McCain, you know, maybe we could count to 5 or 6, but there's no way you're going to get to 19 unless, you know, unless you had something like the tapes that just were a complete game changer and even Republican voters were starting to change their mind about this thing. Well, the impeachment vote in the House is a simple majority vote.
0: And before you got to that stage of the, the Senate holding a trial and voting to convict or acquit, presumably we'd be living in a different universe, quite possibly after a midterm election that would change the balance of power to some extent,
2: but one in which the evidence in the case had progressed much farther. I just don't see the numbers there of people who are willing to break ranks. So it may be even in the face of what you you and I and reality-based viewers see as, as incontrovertible evidence, there will be enough people out there living in an alternative reality of facts amplified by conservative media that simply form a completely different picture and to politicians' sort of weighing the one against the other, you know, there's not there's not kind of be that same pressure of public opinion as expressed through the media that you had with Watergate. And so the, the changes in our media landscape, in our epistemological landscape, if you will, I think that difference between 1974 and 2017-18 seems like one of the biggest differences that we're dealing with.
0: I've been speaking to the historian and Watergate expert, David Greenberg. David, thanks for joining me on the show.
2: Sure. My pleasure.
0: That's it for today's show. Trumpcast was produced by Jason Delione. Our sketch was from Steve Waltine and Kate James. And hey, let me remind you about the Trumpcast Book Club. Our next book is Night Rider, a novel by Robert Penn Warren. It's really good. I have to tell you, all three of us really liked it. We're going to be discussing it later this month. So grab a copy, order a copy. It may take a little effort to find it, but you'll be able to. I also want to tell you about our live show coming up at the North Theater in San Francisco on November 14th. This is going to be a fun one. John D. Domenico, our voice of Donald Trump, is going to be there performing, along with other special guests. You can get tickets at slate.com live. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast.